Hello and welcome back to the Math and Physics podcast. This is the fifth episode. I'm Parker. And I am Ray, and we welcome you to an episode featuring our Math 137 professor, Mihai. Hello. <laughs> All right. So how are um, you today, Mihai? How are you? Um, I'm, I'm good. How are you guys? Fantastic. How has your quarantine been so far? It's not been too bad. It's it's been it's been okay. I mean, I'm uh, I stay at home most of the time anyway, so it's not that different for me, I guess. Uh, okay. Other than um, when we transitioned online with the teaching, that was a bit different. But now that that's over, there isn't really much difference, I don't think. Right. You weren't doing um. You weren't doing online lectures, right? Um. So. I was sort of doing unofficial online lectures, I guess. So I had um, just, they were basically running as office hours, but it turned out that most of the times people just wanted me to walk through the slide. So that's sort of what I ended up doing. Okay. So it was sort of like a lecture, but it was officially an office hour. Okay. <laughs> Wait, I, I never actually, I don't think I went to office hours. I do During, not think I went to office yeah. once. <laughs> I, I went to the math learning center. That was actually pretty useful. Um, but yeah, should we get into the interview? I I think we can. Rayon, you want to go first? Um, sure. Okay, okay. So let's start with the most basic question. So um, we know that Mihai is a professor in 137 in U of T, which is a mathematics class based not solely, but mainly on proofs. So, Mihai, I just want to ask you a, a, a kind of vague question, but do you think proofs are important? And if you do, well, why? Why do you think proofs are so important in math and not just the computation? Oh, well, that's a great question. Um, well, I suppose it's that, you know, mathematicians like to know not just what things are true, but why they're true. and I guess the the main emphasis of a proof is to verify that something is true and it sort of the I guess the nice special thing about math is that you can get that absolute certainty which you sort of don't get in other disciplines I guess so that's something that's um really important about a proof and it also sort of forces you to solidify your understanding of something because you have to essentially a proof has to explain exactly why the thing you're claiming is true is true and so once you've sort of filtered through a filtered a proof through your own uh, brain you sort of have you can sort of say with absolute certainty that you know why that particular thing is true and I guess math is nice for that reason Makes sense. Makes sense. Okay, so now that we've got through the fact that proofs are important, how mm -hmm. about, um, well, I don't really know if you have one, but do you have like a favorite proof or a theorem? Or maybe like, this is my favorite one, or or are they just all equal? Um, I, I think I have a favorite one, I guess, that I could say. Uh, the, there's one, um, uh, it's called Cantor's Theorem. And okay. basically, it's it's a... Uh, it's this sort of proof that pops up in a lot of different places, but I really like the argument of it. It's called like the diagonal argument. So uh, it's sort of like um, 
So the theorem itself proves that the cardinality, which is like the size of a set, of the cardinality of the power set of any set is strictly larger than the cardinality of the original set. And it basically do, does this by constructing a new set and asking, like at, constructing a set of all elements where it says the elements are elements of the sets it constructs or something like that. That's probably wrong, but I mean, it's something like that. And then it ends up being like, it's sort of like Russell's paradox, you know, when like you uh, construct this, that's sort of based on that where you construct this thing and you ask the question, is this, is the set containing all sets a set? And you get this sort of contradiction and it's sort of like that, I guess. It's like, or, or you can here, maybe this is an easier, easier way to say it. Um, you can ask like, so you can talk about different sizes of infinity and you can ask if you look at all the infinite sequences of zeros and ones. So take a sequence and make, suppose it only has zeros and ones and you can say, how many such sequences are there? And if you suppose that there are only countably many, so as many as the natural numbers, then you can prove that you can construct a new sequence that isn't on, that isn't a part of those that you were originally considering by going, by basically constructing a new sequence going down the diagonal of this sort of matrix of sequences that you have. Yeah. Wow. Any, anyway, I, I did a, I did a, I did a terrible job of explaining that because it's actually a very, very nice, um, like it's almost like a pictorial proof. Like you don't even have to really, no, like you could show it to someone in high school and they would totally get it. Right, and, right. Yeah. I, I was actually going to maybe do it on the last day of 137, but um, oh. <laughs> we didn't have that, a class. Yeah, that didn't happen. <laughs> yeah, so I'm not totally sure I like understood everything you said there, but yeah. I don't think I understood what I said. <laughs> <laughs> All right, so um, if uh, you were to talk to someone that was going into 137, what would be your best piece of advice? Hmm. For someone who's like never done proofs before. Well, I guess to make sure you watch all the videos. <laughs> <laughs> watch all the videos before coming to class. And, you know, there are lots of times in the videos where there's a pause and it says, okay, so try that out for yourself. And it's always a good idea that you do that. You should always try that. And take the um, opportunities given in class to work on something seriously. So it's they're not a test to see if you can do something right or not. They're supposed to help develop your understanding of something. And it's absolutely okay if you don't get it and you're totally lost and you make lots of mistakes and you don't know how to start and stuff that's what the instructor is there for and you should ask questions and I mean basically that's the instructors in 137 aren't there to um, criticize you or to judge you or anything like this and so oftentimes I feel sometimes students they want to um they want to work on something, but they don't know how to start. And so they get nervous, but you shouldn't get nervous because the instructors are there to help you and you should just give it your best shot because sort of in, in high school, I guess you do these questions and you're always afraid to be wrong in high school because usually when a teacher asks you something, it's because they want to know if you know the answer or not. But here it's not really like that. So 
You should really feel comfortable. You should basically forget about the fact that you have to be right all the time when you're doing math. I guess that's that's what I mean. And just be okay to it's okay to be wrong, and that's how you learn, and that's how you develop, especially with things like proof writing. Yeah, I guess. that's great. Um, because we <laughs> talked about this, we talked about this earlier. I think on like the first episode of the podcast. I, I watched I watched your episodes of the podcast. By the way, they're very. Oh interesting. wow! Thank you, Sam. Oh, oh, thank you. <laughs> thank you. <laughs> but yeah, we, we talked about how me and Ray have never gone like into like doing proofs prior to coming to U of T. And mm-hmm. so like the first uh, one, the first half of the first semester was super confusing to us because we'd never done like epsilon delta or things like that. So yeah, we were pretty lost. But I think by, by the time the second semester came around, we had a better grip on doing <clears throat> or constructing our proofs, I think. We were a lot more confident in the second semester with uh, with the exam and pretty much everything because I think of how much we learned in one, th- especially how confident we got with proofs. I think that's what's more important. Once we started getting used to them, I think we really started getting used to them. And 137 became a little bit easier, I think, Parker, because like the, <laughs> the midterms, like uh, we actually did well on them. <laughs> we, we did pretty yeah. well <laughs> on the final assessments. So I, yeah. I think personally it, it, it became easier, which is good. On the, um, on the well, um, I think it was third problem set, the the limit one. We got like a 38%. Oh, no, we, we thought we did so well on it. <laughs> but yeah, we, we pulled we pulled it back in the second half though. <laughs> yeah, that's true. Very true. Yeah, so um <clears throat> I I did a little bit of research before uh doing starting the podcast and I saw that you were working on something called C star algebras, which I was super confused as soon as I like opened Wikipedia. So is there like a simple <laughs> way of explaining what, what you're doing there? Well, let's see. So may, maybe the uh, sort of simplest thing I can think of saying is, um, have you guys taken linear algebra, either 223 yeah. or 224? Yeah, 223. Okay, so, you know, there are like these things called like vector spaces do you do that in 223 or do you just talk about rn rn is a vector space so that's 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 fine and um you have these matrices right and um matrices can act on a vector if you know what i mean like you can take a matrix and multiply it multiply a vector by a matrix and then you get another vector so the matrix is like a linear transformation i don't know if you heard yeah we've we've done that okay great so now the thing that makes linear algebra kind of unique, I guess, is that like um, mainly these uh, vector spaces you're looking at in, in two, two, three, and stuff. They're you're you're always talking about finite dimensional things. Okay, so you can think about sort of looking at linear maps between spaces that aren't finite dimensional, so they're infinite dimensional, and because of this, you have approximations coming in. So you have sort of like, a, I guess, analysis or calculus being mixed with something like infinite dimensional algebra, and you get sort of like this branch of math called functional analysis. And you get, so you get these linear operators, but operating on these things called Hilbert spaces. And a C star algebra is just a certain, it's a type of subset of these bounded linear operators. I guess that's the best, easiest explanation I can think of. 
And then, Did you so, get anything? <laughs> so I mean, and, and then people ask all kinds of questions, like, what do these uh, um, uh, C star algebras look like? Or like an example of a C star algebra is the complex numbers. That's a very basic C star algebra. Okay. So you 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 already know a C star algebra. Yeah. <laughs> and um, another example is like the set of uh, all n by n matrices over the complex numbers. That's another C star algebra. Um, so they're just, and then people ask all kinds of questions. They want to understand them. They want to classify them. They want to know when two C star algebras are the same and when two C star algebras are different and things like this. So. Hmm. That's super interesting. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, like I, I've yet to go into like linear maps and things like that, but I do find like the, What's it called? Like the the categories, interesting. Mm -hmm. Hey, so uh, Mihai, so is the C star algebra stuff you're doing? Is it for like your thesis for your PhD, or is it just you're just doing it? Cause yeah, it is. It's so it's for it's for my thesis. So basically, when you um, if you do a master's, like normally when you do a master's, you take some graduate courses and then you do sort of a mini project during the summer after that. And but the project is pretty small and it it can be in you sort of work with a um, faculty member on a sort of micro four-month project. And then for your PhD, the first year you also take courses. And then after that, you spend about three or four or five years working on a thesis in some particular area, I guess. So I chose to work in C-star algebras. That's typically uh, how it works. So the first year of your PhD program, was that like hard or was it? Or was it just like, okay, like what differentiates your first year PhD from, let's say, fourth year math of undergrad or let's say master's level math? Like what's the difference? There are a certain number of courses that you have to take in grad school. So master's and PhD, mm -hmm. which are sort of like core courses. So you have to take them and you have to get a certain grade in them. But it's pretty much uh, a natural extension of the courses you've been taking in undergrad. It's just sort mm -hmm. of more contemporary material or more modern material sort of packed at a more accelerated rate. Um, wow. But it, I guess it's sort of what you're explaining where with 137, the first and second term, after you sort of got the epsilon delta proofs, then things involving epsilon delta proofs made a bit more sense. And so it's, it's sort of like that, like once you do a fourth year math course, you're sort of naturally prepared to do the graduate courses. In fact, a lot of them are cross-listed with fourth-year courses anyway. So mm -hmm. there, and between the master's courses and the PhD courses, there really isn't much difference, at least in terms of the core courses. Then there are select topics courses, which you would do if you, once you've picked your particular field, you might take a specific course in your particular field where you'll pretty much be only with like five other people that are also interested in that particular area. Let's hmm. see. Okay, so after uh, your PhD, so are you looking to complete it this year or soon? Um, or well, let, let's say maybe uh, within the next count, like full year, sometime maybe, okay. or at okay. most a little like so before September twenty twenty one. I would hope, if that makes sense. So okay. by the end of next academic year. And okay. And um, 
after your PhD program, let's say you finish, right? You're all done with your math and you have a PhD in math. Then what will you do after? Like, what is the future of <laughs> someone who is in pure math? Like, what does it look like? No, because I think Parker and I were talking about this the other day where we're like, oh, like in physics, we can go into this, we can go into that because both of us are currently in physics. And mm-hmm. I was just wondering, well, in math, well, once again, I'm, I'm, I'm not trying to, I, I, I'm, I'm probably just not biased towards math. Maybe that's why, but I don't really know what the future looks like for someone who has a math degree. So maybe you could help clear that up. Yeah, I don't even know if I know what the future looks like, but, <laughs> but I, I, I guess it's, I guess it, it really depends. So some people, they, um, if they want to stay in academia, they'll try to get a postdoc somewhere or, which is basically like, um, you get funding for a year or two to work with, to like try to publish more papers in a particular in like your area of expertise and you'll work with a faculty member, but it won't be as uh, guided as the PhD would be because you're basically on your own more. And um, so that's one option and you could do that. You could try to apply for a professorship and normally that takes two or three postdocs, normally, not always, but so that's typically the academic route or you could, um, sort of go now a lot of people are going down the teaching academic route so they want to basically become teaching professors and so they'll focus more on teaching or math education rather than math research and then there are those people that want to go to industry or whatever it is that they want to do that is unrelated to academia because they've been in the phd program and they've had enough of it and um they just want to do something else, I guess. Mm-hmm. And they can get all kinds of jobs, I, I would imagine. But it, it it's not like there is a, a clear cut. There isn't really a clear cut application of pure math. Like it, it's more just like it, it, there isn't a clear cut avenue, I, I guess I should say. So it, it totally depends on the person and what their plans are. But those are some of the ones I can think of. Right. Yeah, did you um did you take physics in high school or university? Um I did take physics in high school. I took it in grade 11 and I got a terrible mark. <laughs> <laughs> I got the worst mark you can get oh. while still passing the course. Oh wow. <laughs> but then I I took physics in university and I got an A+, but just the first year physics. So that's okay. my extended knowledge of physics. <laughs> right, right. And, because, oh, go mm, ahead. No, that was, I was just going to blabber on with the, okay. I wasn't going to say <laughs> no content. I, I was going to say that because um, physics is like kind of like a natural extension to mathematics. So it would be interesting if like you had like like second year, third year knowledge in, in physics because, you know, we, we talk about math and physics on this podcast so Mm -hmm. anything goes (laughs) yeah um let me see here um about about your experience um teaching at u of t um what do you what do you think was the hardest part like hardest part of being a teacher at u of t yeah maybe walking in the room with like 230 people the first time (laughs) um but but that was um, like 
maybe a bit nerve wracking for 10 or 15 minutes. I guess that was pretty hard. But then then it got really nice. And I mean, once you get you sort of you sort of don't realize that anymore once you sort of get into it and um, it becomes a real joy. I love teaching. I mean, that's my favorite thing. So, well, I was just saying that. So once you get um, into it and you sort of um, start to feel the energy of the room, it becomes really exhilarating and fun and a real joy to be a part of. So you sort of forget about the 230 people and it becomes just like a whole experience, I guess, or something. But I, I guess that would have been the most, um, uh, I wouldn't call it difficult. I would just say that um, the biggest challenge, I guess, like walking okay. into that room was a bit intimidating at first. Yeah. So it became really gratifying for you. Oh, of course. Yeah. I love teaching. Awesome. And uh, was there a, like, like the hardest unit that you had to teach? Like, for example, like, was there a unit that you were teaching ever, not only this year, uh, to students, and it was just very hard to explain? Was maybe a unit, maybe a concept? Hmm. Was there ever anything like that? So at UFT, I've, I really only taught 137 as an instructor, and I would definitely probably say that um, the, the, like the first introduction to epsilon deltas and mm -hmm. then some of the taylor series stuff and so th those would be the two main ones i think that are coming to my mind right now um and just maybe some getting mixed up with dummy variables in the integration by substitution integration. business yeah. <laughs> I remember yeah. that. Yeah. You were using like, like the same using letter on yes. two different parts yes. of the board. Yes. Yeah. That that thing. <laughs> yeah. Um, so this next question is more of like an opinionated uh answer, I guess. But do you think that mathematics are discovered or invented? Hmm. I guess um human beings choose the axioms for mathematics and then the the rest the math that comes out of those axioms would be discovered. Mm, interesting opinion. Okay. So if you, if you look at something like Pythagoras's theorem, it's mm -hmm. something that seems like super simple. Do you think that like humans were inevitably going to like, I guess in, in this case, I'm kind of leaning towards it being a discovery um, or like, or like a property of triangles that I guess that humans would like, stumble upon i guess by experimenting but do you think that it's something that, that was kind of inevitable for us to advance in mathematics uh i think so i mean like i i think that it's it's a nice philosophical question I, like i are you are you asking basically like is it necessary to discover the pythagorean theorem before proceeding to other things or like, like, is it a necessary step? Or are you just asking specifically with respect to that theorem if it's discovered or invented? I would still say discovered for both. And I would say probably also that um, uh, it is probably necessary to discover that before you discover other things. Okay, awesome. Yeah, I, my question wasn't super clear, but I was kind of asking a little bit of the two. Well, it's okay. It was certainly more clear than that explanation of the proof I gave at the beginning. <laughs> <laughs> so what do you think? Yeah. 
is oh sorry sorry no no, no 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 i wasn't gonna say anything <laughs> okay sorry. so so what do you think is like the most or i'm not really wording this correctly but pretty much i want to find out if there's anything in mathematics especially obviously that is like we haven't solved it now but if we do if we can it can really help our future is there anything like that in math because I know in physics, for example, there are like many equations, like the like the uh, Millennium problems, where if we solve it, we can get a much deeper understanding of, for example, turbulence. So I was just wondering, is there anything like that, maybe in pure math, where if one were to solve it or do something to it, I guess, some property of math will be fulfilled forever. Is there is there any equation like that? Hmm. That's a great question. I, I guess it depends. I mean, certainly, like you mentioned, there are the like the millennial, the millennium problems, and like those would be like pretty high on the list for mm. candidates of things like that. But also, you could ask any mathematician in any field, and they would definitely pick a problem in their field that they would say, "Yes, it would be amazing if this could be solved," because so many things would be true after that. I mean, the reality is that. Like if you take all the mathematicians at the department at U of T or, st or something, or they all work in completely different fields. So sometimes some theorems would be helpful to a lot of fields. And I guess those would be the ones you're talking about in terms of being the most important, maybe mm -hmm. in some sense, because they just would um, fulfill a lot of things for a lot of people, I guess. So, um, in, so in C star algebra... What is, mm -hmm. what is that one thing? Or is there that one thing? Well, yeah, there's this thing called the classification program where people are trying to um, uh, basically understand exactly. Um, it, so it's like you have, it's basically trying to categorize things. So you have all these C star algebras floating around in the air and you want to understand when two of them are fundamentally the same. You know, like maybe they're the same in the sense that like, I mean, maybe you have different labels for the elements in them, but fundamentally you can relabel them and they have the exact same properties and they're essentially the same. They're just named different things. So you want to come up with, I guess, a bunch of baskets to be able to put these C star algebras in so that when two of them are in the same basket, you know that they're essentially the same, but then you basically get to come up with the criteria for what it means to be in one of these baskets. So you want to, you want to, you want the baskets, you want to have enough baskets so that you can differentiate the C star algebras. Like you could put all the C star algebras in one basket and say, we're done, but you want to have enough C star algebra. You want to, sorry, you want to have enough baskets so that there's a meaningful difference between these groups, but then you don't want to have too many. So you have one basket for every C star algebra, mm. because then there's no point to the process. So you want to have some enough baskets so that when things are two C star algebras are in the same baskets, you can say something meaningful about those two that are in that basket, I guess. So it's all about how specific you want to be. Yeah, it's sort of like that, where the two extremes would be a basket for every C star algebra, and then the other extreme would be one basket for all C star algebras. Hmm. So, um, well, I mean, we're, we're coming up on, uh, coming on 30 up on minutes now. Mm -hmm. so i guess i guess that's that's everything i mean i think this went pretty well we asked a good couple of questions i'm just thinking yeah. if i forgot any questions that i was supposed to ask or that i thought of asking 
No, um, I, I think I got everything. Okay, last question, Mihai. Mm-hmm. Last question. And, and, and I think this is really important. This will really define the future of this podcast. No. <laughs> uh, <laughs> do you think that we were pretty awesome in your class? Like maybe one of the top students? Personality-wise, of course. <laughs> sure, why not? <laughs> Perfect. That's all I wanted to hear. That sounds awesome. I, mean, I, 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 I remember both of you, and I remember exactly where you guys sat. So awesome. Yeah, I, I would say I when I was doing my rounds, I loved walking by there. Personally, I think I I really understood that you legitimately maybe thought something for us, like actually thought of us when you pointed out that Parker had uh, shaved his beard. I still remember that day when you pointed yeah. that out. I'm like, wow, this teacher actually cares about his students in a way that, <laughs> you know, most teachers don't because most people, even if they recognized it, they wouldn't really say anything. Mm-hmm. But you did. And I was really impressed. <laughs> yeah, I, I really enjoyed being in your in your lecture. And, you know, I could have I could have switched to Ray's, which was yeah. more convenient, I think. But I, I don't know. It, I preferred being with a, a nice professor than, you know, having better hours. I actually, okay, I, I, uh, to be honest, I shouldn't really be saying this to a math professor, but I didn't go to a lot of the math classes that I was signed up for. And uh, then Parker told me to come to yours and try it out. And that was just crazy. I absolutely oh. loved it. No, I'm not even joking. That's great. Thank you very much, guys. It's very nice to hear. Absolutely. Once again, thank you so much for coming on this podcast. Thank you so much for a great year that you've had with us. Ho- hopefully, we will see you again. Yeah, I hope so, year. too. Yeah, thank you very yep. much for having me. Absolutely. Thank you so much. And that's, uh, Parker, you want to say something? I was just going to say it was nice talking to you. And um, yeah, that's uh, that's everything for today. That's um, us signing Parker. off. And I am Ray. And we bid you adieu to a fantastic day. All right. Bye. <laughs>